The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Chapter 9, Part 1 of The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter 9. The Bloodhound. Part 1. The aspect of matters had now completely changed. Madame Colucci had at last put herself under the power of the law, and her arrest at the worst was only a question of days. She had, it is true, a good start of her enemy, but an early wire to Scotland Yard would limit her movements by every conceivable device. Each railway terminus in England would be watched, as well as every port all over the country, for in all probability she would try to make straight back to Italy, where, even if she were arrested for crimes committed in England, according to international law, the Italian authorities would not be bound to deliver her up to an English tribunal. Yes, we felt that circumstances were at last pointing to a crisis, and the arrest of the greatest criminal of her day was all but accomplished. Nevertheless, one knew that with such resources as Madame possessed, she might surround herself with unexpected defences, for she had many friends in the country, and some of these moved in the highest and most influential circles. By an early train the two detectives, Dufrayer and myself, returned to town. Madame had, of course, avoided the railways, and had doubtless gone off by road on a prearranged plan with some of her confederates. On the way up, Tyler, who had been silent for some little time, leant across to the official inspector and said, "'Ford, I shall put Miss Sperringer onto this case now. I have more faith in her intuition and skill, where a woman is to be hunted down, than in any of my own men, or yours, either.' The inspector smiled. "'Just as you like,' he said. "'I am well aware of Miss Berenger's skill. There is not a cleverer lady detective in the whole of London, but—' Whether she is employed in the case or not, Madame cannot keep out of our clutches much longer. She has probably got back to London by now. And once there, I'll swear, she won't get out. What we have to do when we arrive is to go straight to Bow Street and get the warrant drawn up. "'You look terribly knocked up, Head,' said Dufrayer, glancing at me. "'I have not quite got over the shock I received yesterday,' was my reply. "'But my hand and arm are not nearly so painful as they were, and I am far too excited to think of rest at present.' When I reach town I shall go straight off to Monkhouse in Wimple Street and take his advice. My impression is that the arm will be all right in a week or so, and now, happen what may, I intend to be in at the death. Dufrayer gave me one of his steady, long glances, but he did not shake his head or attempt to oppose me, for he knew that on this point my resolution was firm. On reaching London I left my companions, who promised to call at my house about one o'clock, and went straight off to see Monkhouse. He dressed my arm and hand carefully, and said that I had had a miraculous escape. I then went home, and waited anxiously for the arrival of Dufrayer and the police officers. They came, soon after the hour arranged, having obtained the warrant for the arrest of Madame Colucci. To my surprise I saw that they were accompanied by a stranger, a tall, well-made girl of about five-and-twenty years of age. Tyler introduced her to me as Miss Anna Berenger, and added in a whisper that we were all right now, as we had secured her services. I glanced at her with some curiosity. 
She was a good-looking girl, with a keen, clever face. Her gray eyes were very bright, and all her features small and well-formed, but there was a certain hardness about her lips which struck me even at the first glance. Those lips alone gave indication of her character, for there was nothing else in her appearance at all out of the common, and to an ordinary person she would appear simply as a bright, well-set-up young girl, with high spirits and a somewhat off-hand manner. Her usual expression was both frank and open, and her voice was very pleasant to listen to. "'Mr. Tyler has given me the outline of the case,' she said, turning to me. "'I know exactly what occurred yesterday. By the way, Mr. Head, I hope you are feeling better. Madame Colucci acted in a most dastardly way towards you, and you escaped as by a miracle. I need not say that Madame is very well known to me. It has been the most earnest wish of my life for several years now to be connected with her capture. I look upon such a capture as the blue ribbon of my profession. She shall not escape me now.' As Miss Beringer spoke, the hard lines round her mouth grew harder still, and the womanly element in her face faded out, giving place to a strong, masculine look of determination and resolution. "'Well,' said Ford, "'we have got the warrant at last, so it is all comparatively plain sailing. The first thing is to go at once to Madame's house. She will scarcely have arrived there yet, but we can at least search the place and put a man on guard. Do you feel up to coming with us, Mr. Head?' he added, turning to me. "'Certainly,' I replied. "'Well, then, we had better lose no time.' I have a carriage at the door, and also a hansom. Miss Sparringer, Dufrayer, and myself a moment later entered the landau which was in waiting for us, and the two detectives followed in the hansom. We all drove straight to Welbeck Street. As we approached Madame's house, we saw that it bore the usual marks of being shut up and comparatively deserted. The window boxes were destitute of flowers, the blinds were down, the steps had not been cleaned, and an air of desolation hung over the place. Dufrayer and I ascended the steps and rang the bell. Ford, Tyler, and Miss Beringer remained in the street. "'Suppose we cannot get in,' I said, after a moment's pause, for no one had yet come to answer our summons. "'With this warrant in my possession we can, if necessary, break down the door,' replied Ford, laughing. "'But here comes someone at last.' We heard shuffling footsteps approaching. They reached the door, the chain inside was undone, and some bolts drawn back. The door was then opened, and a tall, old woman stood on the threshold. "'What do you want?' she said, speaking in a mumbling voice. "'We want Madame Colucci,' said Ford. "'Is she within?' The woman started back quite perceptibly. When Ford came up and spoke to her, I saw that she trembled all over. "'Madame is not at home,' she began. Ford interrupted hastily. "'Look here, missus. I have a warrant here for the arrest of Madame Colucci, and I demand an entrance, as I wish to search the house immediately.' The woman drew back, apparently paralyzed with fear, and we immediately entered the hall in a body. "'I tell you, Madame is not here,' she whimpered. "'Madame has not been here since Saturday last.' Ford pushed her aside unceremoniously, and we began our search. We began with the magnificent reception rooms on the ground floor. This was the first time I had been inside Madame's house in Welbeck Street, but the splendor of the great rooms and the extraordinary luxury of their decorations scarcely astonished me, for I knew the tastes of their owner only too well. Had I not seen Madame Colucci's palace in Naples?' Had not her reception-rooms there been all too familiar to me in those early days, when she exercised so fatal a charm over my life, and by so doing ruined all my future? The English house bore many marks of its foreign ownership. Treasures of priceless value from all parts of the globe were scattered here and there. The most valuable curios of every sort abounded, while carvings of strange heathen deities and frescoes, executed with all the skill of which modern art is capable, decorated the ceilings. Magnificent pictures by English as well as foreign painters, both old masters and more recent productions, 
were to be found on the walls. We entered the consulting-room, the door of which was hung with a splendid specimen of Gobelin's tapestry. The same magnificence and wealth of detail were to be found here. Madame's own special desk was an Italian one in walnut wood. It was inlaid with scroll-work and figures of the cardinal virtues and the pagan deities. Close by its side was the chair in which she must have sat to receive her many patients. This was of antique oak lined with old tapestry, the back and arms profusely set with enameled medallions. There was also, not far from the desk and chair, a handsome Louis XV escritoire, inlaid with various woods and heavy mountings of chaste ormolu. The rest of the furniture of the room was in keeping with that portion which immediately surrounded Madame's chair. The walls from floor to ceiling were formed of inlaid woods, and the ceiling itself was in the shape of a dome, which gave a sort of colossal effect to the great room. But splendid as everything was, the place wore a strange air of desolation. It was only to stand within these walls, to know that the animating and dominant spirit was no longer present to give life and significance to the whole. Having finished searching the ground floor, we went upstairs. The upper part of the house was furnished in a less heavy and more cheerful style, but it was also quite deserted. We were just coming down again when a ladder, leading to the roof, attracted Ford's attention. He ran up and opened a trap-door. We followed him and found, secured in a sheltered part of the roof between two gables, a pigeon-coat, which was now open and empty. "'There is nothing to be found here,' I said, somewhat impatiently. "'Had we not better go at once and search the vaults and the laboratories?' As I said the words, I knew little that our apparently unimportant discovery on the roof of the house was destined to be brought home to us in a remarkable manner. We went down to the basement and continued our exhaustive search. The old woman now came forward and said, in a whining, agitated voice, that she was the only person in the house, all the other servants having been dismissed. "'Can you show us the way to the laboratories?' I asked of her. She looked uneasy, but did not hesitate to comply. She pointed with her finger, and we went down a dim passage. The door of the outer laboratory was open, and we entered. There was another beyond this, also with its door ajar. Both rooms were fitted up with every modern device, and excited my curiosity, as well as envy. But search as we would, we could get no clue to Madame's whereabouts. "'She is not in the house, that is certain,' said Ford, "'and now there is nothing whatever for us to do but to keep a sharp watch in case she should venture to return.' As he spoke, my attention was attracted by the attitude of the old woman. Hitherto she had followed us about something like a snarling and ill-conditioned cur, who protested, but had not the courage to attack. Now she came boldly into the room, and stood facing us, leaning up against the wall. Her eyes were dark and piercing, and shone out on us from beneath heavy, overhanging brows. Her mouth was almost toothless, and she had a nutcracker chin. "'You won't find her,' she muttered. "'Ah, you may look as long as you like, but you'll never find her. The likes of her ain't for the likes of you. She ain't like other women. She's more spirit than woman, and the evil one himself is a friend to her. You won't find her. Never, never!' She laughed in a hollow and exultant manner as she spoke. "'Would it not be well to arrest this old crone?' I said, turning to Ford. He shook his head. "'I don't believe she has anything to do with the conspiracy,' he said, dropping his voice to a whisper, beyond the fact that she is Madame's paid servant. But even if we wished to arrest her, we could not do so on vague suspicion. We can but watch her closely. "'Then there is nothing more to be done at present?' I queried, in a tone of disappointment. "'As far as you are concerned, Head, there is nothing more,' answered Tyler. "'I should recommend you to go home and have a good rest. We will let you know the instant anything happens.' We parted outside the house, where an officer in plain dress was already standing on duty. 
Dufrayer said he would look me up in the evening, and the detectives and Miss Beringer went on their way. I hailed a hansom and returned to my own house. As I have already said, I was far too excited to rest. The old woman's words had affected me more strongly than I cared to allow, and as I paced up and down in my study, I could not help feeling anything but certain of the final result. I knew that Dufrayer, Miss Beringer, Tyler, and Ford were each and all absolutely sure that Madame would soon be captured, but I was possessed by uneasy fears. In this moment of extremity, would not the great criminal bring all the strength of her magnificent genius to bear on the situation? As I thought over these things, I was suddenly possessed by a sense of comfort. This was caused by my recollection of Miss Beringer's face. Ordinary as that face looked to the casual observer, it was by no means so to those who watched it more narrowly. To such a watcher its strange look of power could not but appeal. So contemplated, the face was the reverse of pleasant. The hardness round the lips became its dominant feature. There was also an insistence in the grey eyes which might on emergency amount to absolute cruelty. But it was the strange look of strength which I now remembered with a feeling of satisfaction. If Madame ever met her match, it would be in the person of that slight girl, for she possessed, I knew well, a grip of her subject which neither Ford nor Tyler, with all their intelligence and long practice, could own to. Miss Beringer could do work which they could not even attempt, for to her belonged the delicate intuition which is so essentially a woman's province. I longed to see her again, and also alone, that I might talk over matters more freely with her. Tyler had furnished me with her private address, and I now resolved to telegraph to her. I did so, asking permission to call upon her that evening. The reply came within an hour. "'Don't come to-night, but expect me to call on you early to-morrow.' Dufrayer came in as I was reading the telegram. "'What have you got there?' he asked. "'A wire from Miss Beringer,' I replied. I put it into his hand. "'You are impressed, then, by our new detective?' he said slowly. "'Very much so,' I answered. I gave a few of my reasons, and he favoured me with a grave smile. "'I never felt so hopeful,' he continued. "'We are in a position we were never in yet. It is, as Tyler says, merely a question of days. Where so many are on watch, Madame cannot long escape us.' "'Remember that the person we want to get is Madame Colucci,' I answered, "'and do not be too sure. For my part, I shall never be certain of her until she is absolutely our prisoner.' He did not remain with me much longer, and I spent the night as best I could. Between ten and eleven o'clock on the following morning Miss Beringer arrived. She entered my room quickly, came close to my side, and fixed her eyes on my face. I was startled by the change in her appearance. The grey eyes had a curious bright glitter in them, and her face was pale and drawn. "'Yes, Mr. Head,' she said, as she took the chair offered her. "'These cases take it out of me. When once on the track I never rest, day or night. I have never failed yet. If I did—' I think it would kill me." She shivered as she spoke, and her thin lips were drawn back to show her teeth. She had somewhat the expression of a tigress about to spring. "'You have news, Miss Beringer?' I said. "'I hope good news.' "'I have news,' she replied gravely, "'and I trust it is good. It was because of what I am about to tell you that I was unable to call to see you last evening. Are you strong enough and well enough to go down at once with Ford to Hastings?' "'Certainly,' I replied. I will give you my reasons for asking you to do so. There is a yacht cruising off the coast. It is said to belong to a Captain Marchant. I have had my suspicions from the first, that it is subsidized by Madame. It was on account of these suspicions that I went to Hastings last night. To Hastings? I said. Yes. 
I spent several hours of the night and evening in one of the low quarters of the town by the fish market. There is no doubt that several members of the gang are hiding in the neighborhood of Hastings, and their object is, of course, to get to the yacht. It is all important to take immediate steps to prevent this. "'But how could you find out about the yacht in the first instance?' I asked. "'I obtained a single clue,' she replied. "'No matter how obtained. And just when your telegram reached me was on my way to Hastings, disguised as a fisherwoman. I possess many disguises in my rooms, and am seldom taken aback when I want to act a good part.' I went third class to Hastings, and immediately visited the vicinity of the fish-market. I have a friend there, a fishwife, who does not know my real character, and who is always glad to see me. I can act the part admirably, and when I asked her to accompany me to a large gin-palace she was all too willing. I was in reality following two men, but she knew nothing of that. While these men were drinking at the bar I drew near, and was fortunate enough to hear a few words of their conversation. They spoke for the most part in Italian, which I happened to know. The name of Captain Marchant's yacht, the Snowflake, dropped from the lips of one. There was also a woman mentioned, but not by name. The Snowflake was waiting for the woman. Meanwhile, the men were hiding in an old disused Martello Tower on the Pevensey Marshes. This I learned, scrap by scrap, but it was enough for my purpose. I returned to town by the first train this morning. Ford and Tyler have received all the information I have just told you, and are certain that the yacht belongs to Madame. Ford and Tyler go to Hastings by the twelve o'clock train, and now the question is, can you go with them, and will Mr. Dufrayer be induced to accompany you? Knowing as much as you must do about the society, your help will be invaluable. I will go, I said, and I will send a wire to Dufrayer. Very well, she replied. It is scarcely eleven o'clock yet. You will find the detectives at Charing Cross at noon. But won't you come with us? I said. She turned a little pale. No, she answered. My work obliges me to remain in town. Do you mind telling me what your next step is? I asked. I would rather not, she answered, for even here walls may have ears. As she spoke she glanced round her with a nervous flash in her eyes, which left them almost as soon as it appeared. I never confide my plan of operations to any one in advance, she continued. I have much to do and not a moment to lose. I believe now, between us, Madame has little chance of escape, but one false step, the smallest indiscretion, would be fatal. Good-bye, Mr. Head. I am glad that you have confidence in me. The utmost, I replied, as I wrung her hand. A moment later she left the house. I packed a few things, sent a wire to Dufrayer, and at the right moment drove off to Charing Cross, where I met my friend and also the two detectives. We took our seats in the train, and it moved out of the station. We happened to have the carriage to ourselves, and Ford was in such a state of excitement that he could scarcely sit still. "'Did I not say that Miss Berenger was the one person in all London to help us?' he cried. "'She is like a bloodhound when she scents the prey, and never lets go of the scent. From what she tells me, there is little or no doubt that most of the gang are hiding down in the Pevensey marshes, and have taken possession of one of the old, disused Martello Towers. There are a good many of them along the south coast.' Dufrayer asked one or two questions, and Ford continued. "'That's a cute idea about using the old tower, and I believe the one which we are to watch is number 59. It stands on the beach by the marshes of Pevensey Bay. The gang are only waiting till the steam-yacht, now being closely watched, can take them off. Of course, we could quite easily go straight to the tower and catch those members of the gang who are there, but we want Madame Colucci, and my impression is that she is quite certain to come down to-night or to-morrow.' Our present work, however, will be to watch the tower day and night, so that when she does arrive we can catch her. 
Miss Berenger is under the strong impression that at present Madame is hiding in London. We may have a rough and tumble with the gang when it comes to the point, but I have taken steps to secure lots of assistance. On arriving at Hastings Station we were met by a couple of Tyler's agents. "'Has anything fresh occurred?' asked Ford as we alighted. "'Nothing,' answered one of the men. "'But there is no doubt that several members of the gang are in number 59 Tower, and the steam yacht has drawn off down the channel.' "'Just as I expected,' said Ford. "'Well, the sooner we mount guards, the better. We will start, as soon as it gets dark.' The next few hours we spent in making preparations. It was arranged that we should go as if we intended shooting wild duck. This would give us the excuse of carrying guns, which we knew we might possibly want for bigger game if the gang offered any serious resistance. At six o'clock our little band, consisting of Dufrayer, Ford, Tyler, myself, and a couple of policemen in plain clothes, drove westwards out of the town to a lonely part of the shore. Here a boat awaited us, and entering it we pulled out into the bay. The moon had risen, and we could see the row of Martello Towers dotted along the beach, and the dark waste of the marshes behind them. Ford steered, and after an hour's hard pulling turned the boat's head toward the beach, where one of the dykes ran into the marshes from the sea. This we silently entered, and in a few moments the tall bulrushes that grew on either side completely concealed us. Ford raised his hand, and we quietly shipped our skulls. "'That's where they are,' he whispered pointing to one of the towers about two hundred yards off. "'There's not a light visible, but they are there, and no mistake. Now what we have to do is this. We will leave the boat here, and crawl up under cover of the shingle ridge. We shall be quite close to the tower there, and we can lie in wait, unseen by the gang. How Madame will come, if to-night at all, by boat or otherwise, it is impossible to say, but at any rate, whenever she arrives she cannot escape us. There is the steam-yacht now,' he added, pointing out to sea. I looked up and saw two red and green lights moving slowly along a mile or so from the shore. Taking our guns and the provisions and flasks we had brought with us, we crept through the rushes and out onto the shingle, till we were within twenty yards of the tower. So close were we that I could see every detail. The ladder leading up to the door of the tower halfway up the wall was plainly visible, as was also the old rusty twenty-four-pounder pointing uselessly out to sea. The tower itself was almost in ruins, and here and there the brickwork of the walls showed through the stucco which had been worn off by time. It was a calm night, and only the wash of the sea broke the stillness. I stretched myself out on the rough, loose boulders and shingle, and laid my gun by my side. Hour after hour crept by. The vigil we were all keeping was sufficiently strange and exciting to keep us wakeful and attentive. Presently a night breeze arose, and sighed among the bulrushes in the marshes behind us. But all within the tower was absolutely silent. Not a light showed through the chinks of the windows, not a footfall came to our ears. From where I lay I could watch the lights of the yacht move to and fro in the black darkness. The slow hours dragged on, and still nothing happened. At last dawn began to break. It grew brighter each moment. I was just turning towards Ford for our signal to go back to the boat, when suddenly I saw him leap up, raise his gun, and a loud report rang out on the still morning air. I leapt to my feet also, as did the others. The little window of the tower opened, and two revolver shots rang through it, as Tyler, Dufrayer, and three of the men rushed up the ladder. I followed them immediately, at a loss to know what this sudden change of plan meant. In a few moments we had smashed down the flimsy wooden door, and had come in contact with four men, who, armed with revolvers, greeted us from within. Our onslaught, however, was so sudden and unexpected, that after a short but desperate resistance we had taken them all prisoners. 
They were immediately handcuffed, and Ford and Tyler, with the other police officers, led them out of the tower onto the beach. Ford's eyes were blazing with excitement, and to my surprise I saw a dead pigeon at his feet. "'A messenger to Welbeck Street, Mr. Head!' he exclaimed, handing me what looked like a piece of cigarette paper. "'A carrier pigeon!' I cried, the meaning of his first shot now bursting upon me. "'Yes, and I had a lucky shot at it in this half-light,' he continued. "'But to tell you the truth, I half expected something of the kind, and, so to speak, lay in wait for that pigeon. Last night things came back to me, and I remembered that empty pigeon-coat on the roof of the house in Welbeck Street. From the fact that a message was about to be sent to her, there is no doubt whatever that Madame has returned to her town residence. We will catch her for certain now, though how she has contrived to get into our house with our man-watching it is more than I can say. Can you read this?' As he spoke, he put the cigarette paper into my hand. I scrutinized it closely. Written in very tiny letters, I read the following words. "'Stay in London. Don't come here. Danger.' "'Yes,' went on Ford. "'They spied us directly it began to set light, and seeing their game was up, dispatched this to Madame. But for that shot of mine she would probably have escaped us again. Now we have her safe.' "'But how?' I answered. "'The pigeon is dead, so she won't get the message, and in all probability will come down to Hastings to-day or to-night.' "'We will keep her in London,' said Ford, looking extremely knowing and much excited. "'Oh, yes, she will have her message all right, and in two hours from the present time. Bring them along, Tom.' One of the men was now seen descending the ladder, with a wooden cage in his hands, in which were fluttering two more pigeons. "'By Jove!' I cried, seeing what he meant. "'This is splendid.' "'Yes, and it is about the smartest bit of work I have ever done,' he replied. "'And we owe it all to Miss Berenger. She has given us the clue.' As he spoke, he handed me another piece of cigarette paper, exactly like the one on which the first message had been written. "'You might make things a bit stronger, Mr. Head,' he said. I thought a moment, and then wrote, "'Stay in Welbeck Street until one of us comes to you. Important. Danger, if you stir.' Ford's eyes glittered as he read my words. He attached the little note deftly to the neck of one of the birds. "'There, off you go,' he exclaimed. "'It's lucky. Birds can't talk.' He tossed the pigeon into the air. The bird rose rapidly in gradually increasing circles, and then shot off in a straight line for the north, and so was lost to view, bearing my message to Madame Colucci. As the pigeon darted up into the air, I heard one of the prisoners utter an exclamation, and saw him turn to his fellow. This action of ours had evidently taken him completely by surprise. The man at whom he looked made no reply, even by a glance, but folding his arms across his breast, stood motionless as if at attention. A glance showed me all too plainly that, desperate as the men were, they were at least true to Madame. Even death by torture, did such await them, would not induce any one of the Brotherhood to betray their chief. They were all well-dressed and had the appearance of gentlemen. They took their apparently hopeless fate with stoicism and did not attempt any escape. By this time the sun had well risen, and a glorious morning had chased away the gloom of the night. Placing our prisoners in the boat, we pulled round to a lower part of the shore. Here a trap met us by appointment, and in less than an hour we were all on our way to London. Success had at last rewarded our efforts. We had secured Madame's gang, and now it would be an easy feat to make Madame herself our prisoner. End of chapter 9, part 1「
LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Meade and Robert Eustace. Chapter 9 The Bloodhound. Part 2. Ford had wired to Miss Beringer to meet us at the station, and he whispered to me from time to time as we ran up to town his keen sense of satisfaction. "'Trust Miss Beringer not to have been idle while we were busy down here,' he exclaimed. "'She may probably be able to account for the way in which Madame Colucci has got back to her house. Ah, we have done for Madame Colucci at last. She has got the message of the carrier pigeon by now, but she little guesses who are coming to pay her a visit.' He laughed as he spoke. The train began to approach its destination, and slowed down preparatory to coming into the station. "'The first thing to be done,' said Ford, "'is to take our prisoners to Bow Street, and have them formally charged. Then we will all go round and visit Madame in a party. Ah, here we are. I'll just jump out first, and have a look around for Miss Beringer.' He was the first to spring onto the platform, but look as he would, he could not find the lady detective. He came back presently to the rest of us with a crestfallen expression of face. "'It's odd,' he said. "'But it only shows that she's precious busy with our business. "'In all probability we will find her in the vicinity of the house. "'Now then, to look after the prisoners.' "'We took our men in a couple of cabs to Bow Street, "'and having seen them safe in the cells, drove straight to Madame's house. "'We had our last great capture to make in order to complete our work. "'As we neared the house a strange and almost ungovernable excitement took possession of me. "'Dufrayer and the two detectives were also silent. "'This was no time for speech.' My heart beat hard and fast. The stirring events of the last twenty-four hours had kept my brain going at fever heat, and week after the shock I had recently undergone, the strain began to tell. Once or twice I had to shake myself as a man in a dream. Truly, it was almost impossible to believe that in a few moments now Madame Colucci, the invincible, the daring, the all-powerful, would be our prisoner. We drew up at last at the well-known entrance, and spoke a few words to the man on duty— "'Oh, yes,' he replied. "'It's all right, and there's little or no news. The old woman has gone out once or twice to shop or get some food, but no one has entered the house.' "'What about Miss Beringer? Has she been here?' I asked. "'She was here yesterday evening,' he answered, "'but I have not seen her since.' Telling him to be in readiness without informing him of our convictions, we knocked loudly and rang imperiously at the door. After a very short delay, the same old woman appeared." She wore a sort of nightcap with a deep frill, and her piercing eyes confronted us from under the shaggy brows. She would only now vouchsafe to open the door a few inches. The place showed dimly in the half-light, for every blind was down and every shutter up. We could not even see the bent form of the old woman distinctly. "'Now look here,' said Ford. "'Your mistress is in this house somewhere. We happen to know it for an absolute fact. Will you take us to her or not? For find her, we will.' The woman gave a low laugh, suppressed as soon as uttered. "'You may look all you can,' she exclaimed. "'But madam is not here. You are welcome to search the house to your heart's content.' After saying the last word, she mumbled something more to herself, and then shuffled off down the passage. We all entered the house. "'Now then,' said Ford, "'we'll search from cellar to garret, and we'll start this time downstairs.' We descended to the basement, and made a careful search through the various domestic offices, until once more— we found ourselves in the first of Madame Colucci's magnificent laboratories. Ford switched on the electrics, and we looked around us. The place was in perfect order, but a curious ethereal distillate familiar to my nostrils hung in the air. I could not account for this at the time, though it filled me with a vague fear. We went on into the second laboratory, which was also in order, but was pervaded even more strongly by the same smell. At the farther end of this room was a very low doorway, studded with nails and iron bands. It looked as if it led into some cellar, 
and I suddenly remembered that we had not explored beyond its portals on the occasion of our first visit. The old woman had followed us into the laboratories, keeping well in the background. Ford, who seemed to observe the door at the same moment that I had, turned upon her eagerly. "'Where is the key of this door?' he said. "'I don't know,' she answered. "'Go and find it immediately. My mistress keeps the keys of that room, and until she returns you can't get in,' was the low reply. "'We'll soon see about that,' cried Ford. He turned to one of his men. "'Just go out,' he said, "'and tell the man on duty outside to get me an axe and a crowbar, and bring them here as soon as possible. Hurry as fast as you can, Johnson. There's not a moment to lose.' The man left us immediately. "'I think we shall find a clue at the other side of this locked door,' continued Ford, glancing at me. "'I hope Johnson will look sharp.' In less than a quarter of an hour the man returned with the necessary implements. "'Martin and I went together to fetch them,' he said. "'I'm sorry I could not be back sooner.' Ford seized the axe, and after a few smashing blows over the lock, inserted the bar, and the door burst open. He stepped inside immediately, but as he did so he started back, and a look of horror spread over his face. We all rushed in. "'Good God! We are too late!' he cried. "'She has escaped us!' "'Escaped? How?' I said, pushing forward. "'By death!' he answered. He went forward and knelt on the floor of the room. In the dim light I could plainly see the body of a woman. Ford struck a match and held it close to the face. It was the body of Madame Colucci. Yes, there she lay, the well-known face in all its magnificent beauty, wore now the awful repose of death. Beside her was a small hypodermic syringe, and also an open bottle containing some clear solution. From that open bottle had issued the smell which pervaded the outer and the inner laboratory. For fully a moment we all gazed down at the dead woman in absolute silence. The sudden discovery had struck us dumb. How had she managed to obtain access to the house when it had been so closely watched was indeed a mystery. But after all it mattered nothing now. The end had come. A fit end to such a life as hers had been. We withdrew from the semi-darkness of the room into the outer laboratory. Dufrayer glanced round him. "'I wonder where the old woman can be,' he exclaimed. "'She was with us a moment ago,' I answered. "'Is she not here now?' "'No, she has gone back to her own haunts, most likely. Had we not better call her? It is impossible that Madame could have got into the house without her assistance.' "'I will go and have a look for her,' said Tyler. He left the laboratory, and we heard him moving about the house, his footsteps echoing as he went. He presently came back. "'She is not in any of the kitchens,' he said. "'Perhaps she has gone upstairs. It does not matter much now, does it?' "'No,' I answered. And then once more we were all silent, too stunned to utter many words. I never saw any one look so utterly crestfallen as Ford. "'To think that Madame Colucci should have done us at the very end!' he exclaimed more than once. "'But it was like her, yes, it was like her.' The message which the carrier pigeon brought meant evidently more to her than lay on the surface, I remarked. She saw that she was hemmed in on every side, and was not the woman to be taken alive. "'Well, our search has come to an unlooked-for end,' said Ford again. "'But I do wonder,' he added, "'where Miss Berenger can be. It is very odd that we have not heard or seen anything of her.' Just then Dufrayer spoke. "'Hark!' he said. "'What is that?' We all stood still and listened. Far away, as if from some great distance, we heard a muffled cry. Again and again it was repeated. So faint was the sound that it seemed to be a way out in the street. "'What on earth can it be?' said Ford, looking round him anxiously. We moved softly round the laboratory, fearing to disturb the silent figure that lay in the awful repose of death. Again and once again we heard the cry. We stopped now and then to listen more closely. 
At last we reached a point where it seemed louder than anywhere else. I lay down and applied my ear to the flagstones. "'It is here!' I cried in intense excitement. "'Just beneath us! Listen!' Yes, it was now unmistakable. The sound came from beneath our feet. "'There is a cellar beneath this,' I said. "'Someone is immured here.' We searched rapidly for any sign of an entrance, but searched in vain. Once again the cry was repeated, but now it was as faint as that which might come from the throat of an infant. "'There is someone under here,' said Dufrayer, in a tone of the greatest excitement. "'We must smash the flagstone immediately.' Ford and Tyler both seized the crowbar. In a few moments they had loosened the stone, levered it up, and turned it over. As they did so, I perceived that there was a secret spring underneath, and had we looked long enough we could have removed the stone without the help of the crowbar. The moment it was turned up a breath of intensely cold air greeted us, and we saw immediately beneath our feet a dark circular hole. A low moan came up from the darkness. I gently lowered down the crowbar. It rested on something soft. Our excitement now was intense. Taking off my coat I lowered myself through the hole, and holding on by my hands to the edge of the hole, my feet at last touched the solid ground. The cold that surrounded me was so intense that I almost gasped for breath. In what infernal region was I finding myself? I let go, and striking a match, looked round. Good God! A woman lay in this fearful dungeon. In another moment I had raised her, and as her face caught the light I saw at a glance that it was Miss Beringer. The others quickly lifted her out, and I sprang up beside them. A pair of steel handcuffs were on her wrists. She was so icy cold from the awful chill of that subterranean chamber that at first she looked like one dead. Her mouth was torn and her hands swollen. When she was brought up into the warmer air she lay to all appearance unconscious for several moments. Dufrayer quickly took a flask from his pocket, poured out some brandy, and put it to her lips. At first she could not swallow, then, to our great relief, a few drops went down her throat. She sighed audibly and opened her eyes. When she did so she stared with a dazed expression all round. In less than a moment, however, full consciousness returned. A fierce light of understanding shone in the depths of her eyes, and she sat up. "'Have you got her?' she asked, gazing wildly round. "'We have, Miss Beringer, but not alive,' I answered. "'Now tell us how it is you are here. Tell us what happened, if you possibly can. But the old woman, Madame Colucci, have you got her?' "'Madame Colucci is dead,' I answered, thinking that she had not yet recovered her senses. "'But she is not,' she answered in a passionate voice. "'Take the old woman!' Ford turned to one of his men. "'Fetch her in,' he said. "'I have had a good search for her already,' said Tyler, "'and could not find her in any of the lower regions.' He spoke in a whisper, and I do not think Miss Beringer heard him. She was lying back again with closed eyes. Ford's man rushed out of the room, to return in a few moments. "'I have been all over the house,' he said, "'and cannot find the woman high or low. She is not here.' She must have gone out when Martin and I were away fetching the axe and crowbar. I remember now we left the door open. We had no thought of anything else in our excitement. Miss Beringer heard the words, and once again she roused herself. Now she sprang to her feet. I might have known it, she said. Fools, all of you. How was it she escaped? Did you not recognize her? But Madame Colucci is dead, I said. Come and look for yourself, if you do not believe me. Here she lies in this very room. You scarcely know what you are saying just now after your own awful experience, but at least Madame has not escaped. She can never harm any one again. She has gone to her long account. Miss Beringer uttered a hollow laugh. I am all right, she said. It does not take me long to come back to my senses. Oh, what fools all you men are! Madame knew what she was about when she immured me in that living grave. 
Do you call that, Madame Colucci? Come and look at her again. In the dim light of the laboratory we went and bent over the dead woman. I looked earnestly into the face, and then raised my eyes. Beyond doubt, poor Miss Beringer's senses had given way. The woman on whom I gazed was Madame Colucci. Feature for feature was the same. "'I see you doubt me,' said Miss Beringer. "'Well, listen to my story.' She stood before us and began to speak eagerly. We all clustered round her. Never before had we listened to a tale of more daring and unparalleled atrocity. "'I told you, Mr. Head,' she began, "'that I had work which would keep me in town. So I had. From the time you went to Hastings yesterday I began to watch this house. I had all faith in the police officers you, Mr. Ford, had placed on duty, but I also felt certain that Madame, in her unbounded resources, would find a means to return. I knew that, if such were the case, it would need all a woman's keenest wit and intuition to foil her. She knew me, as well as I knew her. It is true that she feared no man in London, but I do believe she had a wholesome dread of Anna Beringer. Well, my watch began, and for the first hour or so nothing occurred, but as soon as it was dark I saw the old caretaker, who showed you over the house on the first occasion, come out by the area door. I immediately followed her. She went straight to a shop in the Marylebone High Street, a small grocer's. She remained there for nearly half an hour. When she came out she was carrying a bag, quite a small one which apparently contained some provisions. I followed her again, watching her closely as I did so. Something about her walk first attracted my attention. The man on duty passed us as we went down Welbeck Street. I quickened my steps, and was in reality only two or three feet behind the woman, whom I now strongly suspected to be Madame Colucci herself. Just when we reached the open gate of the area, and as I was about to lay my hand on her shoulder, she turned quick as lightning upon me, and dashed into my face a liquid which must have been a solution of the strongest ammonia. The effect was instantaneous. I fell back, gasping for breath, and unable to utter a sound. She well knew what the effect of the ammonia would be, causing a sudden paralysis of the glottis, which would prevent my uttering a word for a couple of moments. Before I could recover myself, she had flung her arm around me, had dragged me down the area steps and into the house. The moment we got within, she slipped a pair of handcuffs on my wrists, and also gagged me. I was so paralyzed by the effect of the ammonia that I did not attempt to make the smallest struggle until too late. When she had gagged and bound me, she dragged me down a passage and into this laboratory where we are now standing. She then laid me on the floor and tied me down securely. When she had done this, she looked down at me and smiled a smile of devilish cruelty. "'Yes, Miss Beringer, she said, "'you are a smart woman, the smartest with one exception in all London. You are interested in me. I am about to gratify that interest.' She left me for a few moments, and presently returned, dragging something heavy after her. Horror of horrors! It was a woman's dead body. I could scarcely believe the evidence of my own senses. She laid the body on the floor, and began to dress it in some of her clothes. Having done this, and having arranged it in the attitude of one who might have suddenly fallen and died, she came up to me again. Two years ago,' she said, speaking slowly, and bending her face to within about a foot of mine, there lived a woman in Naples who was in every respect my double. She was like me in every feature, in height, proportion, even to the expression of the face. She was a peasant woman, but so strong was her resemblance to me that twice the Neapolitan police arrested her, believing her to be me. They, of course, discovered their mistake, and she quickly recovered her liberty. The woman died, and though to all appearance she was buried, it was but a mock funeral, for I had been watching her, and I felt that in extremis she would be of the utmost use to me. I offered the woman's husband a large sum for her body. 
it was conveyed to my house in Naples, no matter how. The husband received his money, but in order that no tales might arise, he was quickly afterwards put out of the way by one of my confederates. I kept the body at a very low temperature, and when I came to England in my own yacht, brought it with me. Since then, it has remained in a frozen chamber beneath the floor of the inner laboratory, thus retaining its likeness, as under such circumstances it would perpetually. The time has come when I must use my double in order to effect my own escape. The most vindictive tribunal in the world will pause at the edge of the grave. My enemies will suppose that I am dead, and I shall escape from their power. For the likeness to me is so perfect that detection cannot be made until the autopsy. By then I shall be well out of the country, for the men who are on watch for me will have withdrawn the moment the news of my suicide is known. I mean to put a hypodermic syringe and a bottle of strong poison near the body of the woman. Thus all will be complete. This is my last trump card. And now, Miss Beringer, she added, with a strange laugh, which I hear even now echoing in my ears, for your part in this ghastly game, in order to ensure your silence, I mean to consign you to the frozen chamber from which I have just taken this woman. Gagged and bound in that place, your tortures will not last long, for death will soon release you from them. But know that you can never again mingle with your fellow men. Know also that you made a mistake when you pitted your strength against mine, for mine is the stronger. Come. She raised me as if I were an infant, and lifted me into the inner room. I noticed that one of the flagstones was up. The gag prevented my speaking. The thongs which bound me prevented my struggling. Madame thrust me into the frozen chamber, and sealed the stone above me. There I have remained for the last fifteen hours. What I have endured is beyond description. At last I fancied I heard footsteps overhead. I made one frantic struggle, and managed to remove the gag from my lips. The moment I did so I shouted wildly, "'Thank God! You heard me in time!' Miss Beringer's words fell on our ears like the strokes of a hammer. We were far too stunned to reply. Madame had been in our very grasp, under our hands, and once more she had eluded. End of chapter 9「Ten, Part One of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. Chapter Ten, The Doom, Part One. The mysterious disappearance of Madame Colucci was now the universal topic of conversation. Her house was deserted. Her numerous satellites were not to be found. The woman herself had gone, as if it were, from the face of the earth. Nearly every detective in London was engaged in her pursuit. Scotland Yard had never been more agog with excitement, but day after day passed, and there was not the most remote tidings of her capture. No clue to her whereabouts could be obtained. That she was alive was certain, however, and my apprehensions never slumbered. I began to see that cruel face in my dreams, and whether I went abroad or whether I stayed at home, it equally haunted me. A few days before Christmas I had a visit from Defrayer. He found me pacing up and down my laboratory. "'What is the matter?' he said. "'The old story,' I answered. He shook his head. "'This won't do, Norman. You must turn your attention to something else.' "'That is impossible,' I replied, raising haggard eyes to his face. He came up and laid his hand on my shoulder. "'You want change, Head.' and you must have it. I have come in the nick of time with an invitation which ought to suit us both. 
"'We have been asked down to Rokesby Rectory to spend Christmas with my old friend, the rector. You have often heard me talk of William Sherwood. He is one of the best fellows I know. Shall I accept the invitation for us both?' "'Where is Rokesby Rectory?' I asked. "'In Cumberland, about thirty miles from Lake Windermere, a most picturesque quarter. We shall have as much seclusion as we like at Sherwood's house, and the air is bracing. If we run down next Monday, we shall be in time for a merry Christmas. What do you say?' I agreed to accompany Dufrayer, and the following Monday, at an early hour, we started on our journey. Nothing of any moment occurred, except that at one of the large junctions a party of gypsies got into a third-class compartment near our own. Amongst them I noticed one woman, taller than the rest, who wore a shawl so arranged over her head as to conceal her face. The unusual sight of gypsies travelling by train attracted my attention, and I remarked on it to Dufrayer. Later on I noticed, too, that they were singing, and that one voice was clear and full and rich. The circumstance, however, made very little impression on either of us. At Rokesby Station the gypsies left the train, and each of them carried his or her bundle, disappearing almost immediately into a thick pine forest, which stretched away to the left of the little station. The peculiar gait of the tall woman attracted me, and I was about to mention it to Dufrayer when Sherwood's sudden appearance and hurried, hospitable greeting put it out of my head. Sherwood was a true specimen of a country parson. His views were broad-minded, and he was a thorough sportsman. The vicarage was six miles from the nearest station, but the drive through the bracing air was invigorating, and I felt some of the heaviness and depression which had made my life a burden of late already leaving me. When we reached the house we saw a slenderly made girl standing in the porch. She held a lamp in her hand, and its bright light illuminated each feature. She had dark eyes and a pale, somewhat nervous face. She could not have been more than eighteen years of age." "'Here we are, Rosalie,' called out her father. "'And cold, too, after our journey. I hope you have seen to the fires.' "'Yes, father. The house is warm and comfortable,' was the reply. The girl stepped onto the gravel and held out her hand to Dufrayer, who was an old friend. Dufrayer turned and introduced me. "'Mr. Head? Rosalie,' he said. "'You have often heard me talk of him.' "'Many times,' she answered. "'How do you do, Mr. Head? I am very glad, indeed, to welcome you here.' You seem quite like an old friend, but come in, both of you do. You must be frozen. She led the way into the house, and we found ourselves in a spacious and very lofty hall. It was lit by one or two standard lamps, and was in all respects on a larger and more massive scale than is usually to be found in a country rectory. Ah, you are noticing our hall, said the girl, observing the interest in my face. It is quite one of the features of Rokesby. But the fact is, this is quite an old house, and was not turned into a rectory until the beginning of the present century. I will take you all over it to-morrow. Now do come into Father's smoking-room. I have tea prepared there for you." She turned to the left, threw open a heavy oak door, and introduced us into a room lined with cedar from floor to ceiling. Great logs were burning on the hearth, and tea had been prepared. Miss Sherwood attended to our comforts, and presently left us to enjoy our smoke. "'I have a thousand and one things to see to,' she said. "'With Christmas so near, you may imagine that I am very busy.' When she left the room, the rector looked after her with affection in his eyes. "'What a charming girl!' I could not help saying. "'I am glad you take to her, Mr. Head,' was his reply. "'I need not say that she is the light of my old eyes. Rosalie's mother died a fortnight after her birth, and the child has been as my one ewe lamb. But I am sorry to say she is sadly delicate.' and I have had many hours of anxiety about her. 
"'Indeed,' I replied. "'It is true she looks pale, but I should have judged that she was healthy, rather of the wiry make. In body she is fairly healthy, but hers is a peculiarly nervous organism. She suffers intensely from all sorts of terrors, and her environment is not the best for her. She had a shock when young. I will tell you about it later on.' Soon afterwards Dufrayer and I went to our respective rooms, and when we met in the drawing-room half an hour later, Miss Sherwood, in a pretty dress, was standing by the hearth. Her manners were very simple and unaffected, and although thoroughly girlish, were not wanting in dignity. She was evidently well accustomed to receiving her father's guests, and also to making them thoroughly at home. When we entered the dining-room we had already engaged in a brisk conversation, and her young voice and soft dark-brown eyes added much to the attractiveness of the pleasant scene. Towards the end of the meal I alluded once again to the old house. "'I suppose it is very old,' I said. "'It has certainly taken me by surprise. You must tell me its history.' I looked full at my young hostess as I spoke. To my surprise a shadow immediately flitted over her expressive face. She hesitated, then said slowly, "'Every one remarks the house, and little wonder. I believe in parts it is over three hundred years old. Of course, some of the rooms are more modern. Father thinks we were in great luck when it was turned into a rectory, but—here she dropped her voice, and a faint sigh escaped her lips. I looked at her again with curiosity. "'The place was spoiled by the last rector,' she went on. "'He and his family committed many acts of vandalism, but Father has done his best to restore the house to its ancient appearance. You shall see it to-morrow, if you are really interested.' "'I take a deep interest in old houses,' I answered and this, from the little I have seen of it, is quite to my mind. Doubtless you have many old legends in connection with it, and if you have a real ghost it will complete the charm. I smiled as I spoke, but the next instant the smile died on my lips. A sudden flame of colour had rushed into Miss Sherwood's face, leaving it far paler than was natural. She dropped her napkin and stooped to pick it up. As she did so, I observed that the rector was looking at her anxiously, he immediately burst into conversation, completely turning the subject into what I considered a trivial channel. A few moments later the young girl rose and left us to our wine. As soon as we were alone, Sherwood asked us to draw our chairs to the fire and began to speak. "'I heard what you said to Rosalie, Mr. Head,' he began, "'and I am sorry now that I did not warn you. There is a painful legend connected with this old house.' and the ghost whom you so laughingly alluded to exists, as far as my child is concerned, to a painful degree. Indeed, I answered. I do not believe in the ghost myself, he continued, but I do believe in the influence of a very strong nervous terror over Rosalie. If you like, I will tell you the story. Nothing could please me better, I answered. The rector opened a fresh box of cigars, handed them to us, and began. The man who was my predecessor here had a scapegrace son, who got into serious trouble with a peasant girl in this forest. He took the girl to London, and then deserted her. She drowned herself. The boy's father vowed he would never see the lad again, but the mother pleaded for him, and there was a sort of patched-up reconciliation. He came down to spend Christmas in the house, having faithfully promised to turn over a new leaf. There were festivities, and high mirth. On Christmas night the whole family retired to bed as usual, but soon afterwards a scream was heard, issuing from the room where the young man slept, the West Room, it is called. By the way, it is the one you are to occupy, Dufrayer. The rector rushed into the room, and to his horror and surprise found the unfortunate young man dead, stabbed to the heart. There was naturally great excitement and alarm. 
more particularly when it was discovered that a well-known herb-woman, the mother of the girl whom the young man had decoyed to London, had been seen haunting the place. Rumour went so far as to say that she had entered the house by means of a secret passage known only to herself. Her name was Mother Harriet, and she was regarded by the villagers as a sort of witch. This woman was arrested on suspicion, but nothing was definitely proved against her, and no trial took place. Six weeks later she was found dead in her hut on Grey Tor, and since then the rumour is that she haunts the rectory on each Christmas night, entering the house through the secret passage which we none of us can discover. This story is rife in the house, and I suppose Rosalie heard it from her old nurse. Certain it is that when she was about eight years old she was found on Christmas night screaming violently, and declaring that she had seen the herb-woman, who entered her room and bent down over her. Since then her nerves have never been the same. Each Christmas, as it comes round, is a time of mental terror to her, although she tries hard to struggle against her fears. On her account I shall be glad when Christmas is over. I do my best to make it cheerful, but I can see that she dreads it terribly. "'What about the secret passage?' I interrupted. "'Ah, I have something curious to tell you about that,' said the old rector, rising as he spoke. "'There is not the least doubt that it exists. It is said to have been made at the time of the Monmouth Rebellion,' and is supposed to be connected with the churchyard, about two hundred yards away. But although we have searched, and have even had experts down to look into the matter, we have never been able to get the slightest clue to its whereabouts. My impression is that it was bricked up long ago, and that whoever committed the murder entered the house by some other means. Be that as it may, the passage cannot be found, and we have long ceased to trouble ourselves about it. But you have no clue whatever to its whereabouts? I asked. "'Nothing which I can call a clue. My belief is that we shall have to pull down the old pile before we find the passage.' "'I should like to search for it,' I said impulsively. "'These sorts of things interest me immensely.' "'I could give you a sort of key-head, if that would be any use,' said Sherwood. "'It is in an old black-letter book.' As he spoke he crossed the room, took a book bound in vellum with silver clasps from a locked bookcase, and opening it laid it before me. "'This book contains a history of Rokesby,' he continued. "'Can you read Black Letter?' I replied that I could. He then turned a page and pointed to some rhymed words. "'More than one expert has puzzled over these lines,' he continued. "'Read for yourself.' I read aloud slowly. "'When the U and star combine, draw it twenty cubics line. Wait until the saintly lips shall the belfry spire eclipse. Cubits eight across the first there shall lie the tomb accursed. And you have never succeeded in solving this? I continued. We have often tried, but never with success. The legend runs that the passage goes into the churchyard, and has a connection with one of the old vaults, but I know nothing more. Shall we join Rosalie in the drawing-room? May I copy this old rhyme first? I asked. My host looked at me curiously, then he nodded. I took a memorandum-book from my pocket and scribbled down the words. Mr. Sherwood then locked up the book in its accustomed place, and we left the subject of the secret passage and the ghost, to enjoy the rest of the evening in a more everyday manner. The next morning, Christmas Eve, was damp and chill, for a thaw had set in during the night. Miss Sherwood asked Dufrayer and me to help her with the church decorations, and we spent a busy morning in the very old Norman church, just at the back of the vicarage. When we left it, on our way home to lunch, I could not help looking round the churchyard with interest. Where was the tomb accursed into which the secret passage ran? As I could not talk, however, on the subject with Miss Sherwood, I resolved, at least for the present, 
to banish it from my mind. A sense of strong depression was still hanging over me, and Madame Colucci herself seemed to pervade the air. Yet surely no place could be farther from her accustomed haunts than this secluded rectory at the base of the Cumberland Hills. "'The day is brightening,' said Rosalie, turning her eyes on my face as we were entering the house. "'Suppose we go for a walk after lunch. If you like, we could go up Grey Tour and pay a visit to Mother Harriet.' "'Mother Harriet?' I repeated in astonishment. "'Yes, the herb-woman. But you do know about her?' "'Your father spoke about a woman of the name last night?' "'Oh, I know,' replied Miss Sherwood hastily. "'But he alluded to the mother, the dreadful ghost which is said to haunt Rokesby. This is the daughter. When the mother died a long time ago, after committing a terrible murder, the daughter took her name and trade. She is a very curious person, and I should like you to see her.' She is much looked up to by the neighbors, although they also fear her. She is said to have a panacea against every sort of illness. She knows the property of each herb that grows in the neighborhood, and has certainly performed marvelous cures. Does she deal in witchcraft and fortune-telling? I asked. A little of the latter, beyond doubt, replied the girl, laughing. She shall tell your fortune this afternoon. What fun it will be! We must hurry with lunch, for the days are so short now." Soon after the midday meal we set off, taking the road for a mile or two, and then, turning sharply to the right, we began to ascend Grey Tor. Our path led through a wood of dark pine and larches, which clothed the side of the summit of the hill. The air was still very chilly, and it struck damp as we entered the pine forest. Wreaths of white mist clung to the dripping branches of the trees. The earth was soft and yielding, with fallen pine leaves and dead fern. "'Mother Harriet's hut is just beyond the wood,' said Rosalie. "'You will see it as soon as we emerge. Ah, there it is!' she cried. I looked upward and saw a hut made of stone and mud, which seemed to cling to the bare side of the mountain. We walked quickly up a winding path that grew narrower as we proceeded. Suddenly we emerged onto a little plateau on the mountainside. It was grass-covered and strewn with grey granite boulders. Here stood the rude hut. From the chimney some smoke was going straight up like a thin blue ribbon. As we approached close we saw that the door of the hut was shut. From the eaves under the roof were hanging several small bunches of dried herbs. I stepped forward and struck upon the door with my stick. It was immediately opened by a thin, middle-aged woman, with a singularly lined and withered face. I asked her if we might come in. She gave me a keen glance from out of her beady black eyes. Then, seeing Rosalie, her face brightened. She made a rapid motion with her hand, and then, to my astonishment, began to speak on her fingers. "'She can hear, all right, but she is quite dumb. Has been so since she was a child,' said the rector's daughter to me. "'She does not use the ordinary deaf and dumb language, but she taught me her peculiar signs long ago, and I often run up here to have a chat with her.' "'Now look here, mother,' continued the girl, going up close to the dame. "'I have brought two gentlemen to see you. We want you to tell us our fortunes. It is lucky to have the fortune told on Christmas Eve, is it not?' The herb-woman nodded, then pointed inside the hut. She then spoke quickly on her fingers. Rosalie turned to us. "'We are in great luck,' said the girl excitedly. "'A curious thing has happened. Mother Harriet has a visitor staying with her, no less a person than the greatest fortune-teller in England, the Queen of the Gypsies. She is spending a couple of nights in the hut. Mother Harriet suggests that the Queen of the Gypsies shall tell us our fortunes. It will be quite magnificent.' I wonder if the woman she alludes to is one of the gypsies who arrived at Rokesby Station yesterday, I said, 
turning to Dufrayer. "'Very possibly,' he answered, just raising his brows. Rosalie continued to speak in great excitement. "'You consent, don't you?' she said to us both. "'Certainly,' said Dufrayer, with a smile. "'All right, mother,' cried Miss Sherwood, turning once again to the herb-woman. "'We will have our fortunes told, and your gypsy friend shall tell them. Will she come out to us here, or shall we go in to her?' Again there was a quick pantomime of fingers and hands. Rosalie began to interpret. "'Mother Harriet says that she will speak to her first. She seems to stand in considerable awe of her.' The herb-woman vanished inside the hut. We continued to stand on the threshold. I looked at Dufrayer, who gave me an answering glance of amusement. Our position was ridiculous, and yet, ridiculous as it seemed, there was a curiously tense feeling at my heart, and my depression grew greater than ever. I felt myself to be standing on the brink of a great catastrophe, and could not understand my own sensations. The herb-woman returned, and Miss Sherwood eagerly interpreted. "'How queer!' she exclaimed. "'The gypsy will only see me alone. I am to meet her in the hut. Shall I go?' "'I should advise you to have nothing to do with the matter,' said Dufrayer. "'Oh, but I am curious. I should like to,' she answered. "'Well, we will wait for you.' "'But don't put faith in her silly words.' The girl's face slightly paled. She entered the hut. We remained outside. "'Knowing her peculiar idiosyncrasy, I wonder if we did right to let her go in,' I said to my friend. "'Why not?' said Dufrayer. "'With such a disposition she ought not to be indulged in ridiculous superstitions,' I said. "'She cannot take such nonsense seriously,' was his reply." He was leaning up against the lintel of the little hut, his arms folded, his eyes looking straight before him. I had never seen his face look keener or more matter-of-fact. A moment later Miss Sherwood reappeared. There was a marked and quite terrible change in her face. It was absolutely white. She avoided our eyes, slipped a piece of silver into Mother Harriet's hand, and said quickly, "'Let us hurry home. It is turning very cold.' "'Now what is it?' said Dufrayer as we began to descend the mountain. "'You look as if you have heard bad news.' "'The Queen of the Gypsies was very mysterious,' said the girl. "'What sort of person was she?' I asked. "'I cannot tell you, Mr. Head. I saw very little of her. She was in a dark part of the hut and was in complete shadow. She took my hand and looked at it, and said what I am not allowed to repeat. "'I am sorry you saw her,' I answered. "'But surely you don't believe her.' You are too much a girl of the latter end of the nineteenth century to place your faith in fortune-tellers. But that is just it, she answered. I am not a girl of the nineteenth century at all, and I do most fully believe in fortune-telling and all kinds of superstitions. I wish we hadn't gone. What I have heard does affect me strangely, strangely. I wish we had not gone. We were now descending the hill, but as we walked Miss Sherwood kept glancing behind her as if afraid of someone or something following us. Suddenly she stopped, turned round, and clutched my arm. "'Hark! Who is that?' she whispered, pointing her hand towards a dark shadow beneath the trees. "'There is someone coming after us. I am certain there is. Don't you see a figure behind that clump? Who can it be? Listen!' We waited and stood silent for a moment, gazing towards the spot which the girl had indicated. The sharp snap of a dead twig followed by the rustling noise of rapidly retreating footsteps, sounded through the stillness. I felt Miss Sherwood's hand tremble on my arm. "'There certainly was someone there,' said Dufrayer. "'But why should there not be?' "'Why, indeed,' I echoed. 
"'There is nothing to be frightened about, Miss Sherwood. "'It is doubtless one of Mother Harriet's bucolic patients.' "'They never venture near her at this hour,' she answered. "'They believe in her, but they are also a good deal afraid. "'No one ever goes to see Mother Harriet after dark. "'Let us get quickly home.' "'I could see that she was much troubled, "'and thought it best to humour her. "'We hurried forward. "'Just as we entered the pine wood, I looked back. "'On the summit of the little ridge which contained Mother Harriet's hut, "'I saw dimly through the mist a tall figure. "'The moment my eyes rested on it, it vanished.' There was something in its height and gait which made my heart stand still. It resembled the tall gypsy whom I had noticed yesterday, and it also bore, God in heaven, yes, an intangible and yet very real resemblance to Madame Colucci. Madame Colucci here? Impossible! My brain must be playing me a trick. I laughed at my own nervousness. Surely here, at least, we were safe from that woman's machinations. We reached home, and I mentioned my vague suspicion to Defrayer. "'A wild idea has occurred to me,' I said. "'What?' he answered. "'It has flashed through my brain that there is just a remote possibility that the gypsy fortune-teller in Mother Harriet's hut is Madame herself.' He looked thoughtful for a moment. "'We can never tell where and how Madame may reappear,' he said. "'But I think in this case, Head, you may banish the suspicion from your mind. Beyond doubt, the woman has left England long ago.' The evening passed away. I noticed that Rosalie was silent and preoccupied. Her nervousness was now quite apparent to every one, and her father, who could not but remark it, was especially tender to her. End of chapter 10, part 1For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. Chapter 10 The Doom. Part 2. Christmas Day went by quietly. In the morning we all attended service in the little church, and at night some guests arrived for the usual festivities. We passed a merry evening, but now and then I glanced with a certain apprehension at Miss Sherwood. She was in white, with holly-berries in her belt and dark hair. She was certainly a very pretty girl, but the uneasiness plainly manifested in her watchful eyes and trembling lips marred her beauty. There was a want of quiet about her, too, which infected me uncomfortably. Suddenly I determined to ask for her confidence. What had the mysterious gypsy said to her? This was the night when, according to old tradition, the ghost of the herb-woman appeared. If Miss Sherwood could relieve her mind before retiring to rest, it would be all the better for her. We were standing near each other, and as she stooped to pick up a bunch of berries which had fallen from her belt, I bent towards her. "'You are troubled about something,' I said. "'Oh, I am a very silly girl,' she replied. "'Will you not tell me about it?' I continued. "'I will respect your confidence, and give you my sympathy.' "'I ought not to encourage my nervous fears,' she replied. "'By the way, did father tell you about the legend connected with this house?' "'He did.' This is the night when the herb-woman appears. My dear child, you don't suppose that a spirit from the other world really comes back in that fashion? Dismiss it from your mind. There is nothing in it. So you say, she answered, but you never saw. She began to tremble, and raising her hand, brushed it across her eyes. I feel a ghostly influence in the air, she said. I know that something dreadful will happen to-night. 
You think that because the fortune-teller frightened you yesterday. She gave me a startled and wide-awake glance. What do you mean? I judge from your face and manner. If you will take courage and unburden your mind, I may doubtless be able to dispel your fears. But she told me what she did under the promise of secrecy. Dare I break my word? Under the circumstances, yes, I answered quickly. Very well, I will tell you. I don't feel as if I could keep it to myself another moment, but you on your part must faithfully promise that it shall go no farther. I will make the promise, I said. She looked me full in the face. Come into the conservatory, she said. She took my hand and led me out of the long, low drawing-room into a great conservatory at the farther end. It was lit with many Chinese lanterns, which gave a dim and yet bright effect. We went and stood under a large lemon-tree, and Miss Sherwood took one of my hands in both her own. "'I shall never forget that scene yesterday,' she said. I could scarcely see the face of the gypsy, but her great, brilliant eyes pierced the gloom, and the feel of her hand thrilled me when it touched mine. She asked me to kneel by her, and her voice was very full and deep and of great power, and it was not like that of an uneducated woman. She spoke very slowly, with a pause between each word. "'I pity you, for you are close to death,' she began. I felt myself quite incapable of replying, and she continued, "'Not your own death, nor even that of your father, but all the same you are very close to death.' death will soon touch you, and it will be cold and mysterious and awful, and try as you may, you cannot guard against it, for it will come from a very unlooked-for source, and be instant and swift in its work. Now ask me no more. Go. But what about the fortunes of the two gentlemen who are waiting outside? I said. I have told you the fortunes of those men, she answered. Go. She waved me away with her hand, and I went out. That is all, Mr. Head. I do not know what it means, but you can understand that to a nervous girl like me it has come as a shock. I can, truly, I replied, and now you must make up your mind not to think of it any more. The gypsy saw that you were nervous, and she thought she would heighten the impression by words of awful portent, which doubtless mean nothing at all. Rosalie tried to smile, and I think my words comforted her. She little guessed the battle I was having with my own heart the unaccountable depression which had assailed me of late, now gathered thick like a pall. Late that evening I went to Defrayer's room. I had promised Miss Sherwood that I would not betray her confidence, but the words of the gypsy in the herb-woman's hut kept returning to me again and again. I pity you, for you are close to death. You cannot guard against it, for it will come from an unlooked-for source, and be instant and swift in its work. "'What is the matter?' said Defrayer glancing into my face. "'I am depressed,' I replied. "'The ghostly legend belonging to this house is affecting me.' He smiled. "'And by the way,' I added, "'you are sleeping in the room where the murder was committed.' He smiled again, and gave me a glance of amused commiseration. "'Really, Head,' he cried, "'this sort of thing is unlike you. Surely old wives' fables ought not to give you a moment's serious thought. The fact that an unfortunate lad was murdered in this room— cannot affect my nerves some twenty years afterwards. Do go to bed, my dear fellow. You need a long sleep. He bade me good-night. I had no excuse to linger, and I left him. Just as I reached the door, he called after me. Good-night, old man. Sleep well. I turned and looked at him. He was standing by the window. His face was towards me, and he still wore that inscrutable smile which was one of his special characteristics. I left him. 
I little guessed. I retired to my room. My brain was on fire. It was impossible for me to rest. What was yesterday but a vague suspicion was now assuming the form of a certainty. Only one person could have uttered the words which Miss Sherwood had heard. Beyond doubt, Madame Colucci had known of our proposed visit to Rokesby. Beyond doubt, she, in company with some gypsies, had joined our train, and when we arrived at Rokesby, she alighted there also. With her knowledge of the gypsies, an acquaintanceship with Mother Harriet would be easily made. To take refuge in her hut would be a likely contingency. Why had she done so? What mischief could she do to us from such a vantage point? Suddenly, like a vivid flash, the memory of the secret passage, which none of the inmates of the house could discover, returned to me. In all probability this passage was well known to Mother Harriet, for had not her mother committed the murder which had taken place in this very house, and did not the legend say that she had entered the house and quitted it again through the secret passage? I quickly made up my mind. I must act, and act at once. I would go straight to the hut. I would confront Madame. I would meet her alone. In open combat I had nothing to fear. Anything was better than this wearing and agonizing suspense. I waited in my room until the steps of the old rector retiring for the night were heard, and then went swiftly downstairs. I took the key of the hall door from its hook on the wall, opened it, locked it behind me, went to the stables, secured a lantern, and then began my ascent of grey tour. The night was clear and starlit. The moon had not yet risen, but the stars made sufficient light for me to see my way. After a little over an hour's hard walking, I reached the herb woman's hut. I thundered on the door with my stick, and in a minute the dame appeared. Suddenly I remembered that she was dumb, but she could hear. I spoke to her. "'I have a word to say to the stranger who was here yesterday,' I began. "'Is she within? I must see her at once.' The herb woman shook her head. "'I do not believe you,' I said. "'Stand aside. I must search the hut.' She stood aside, and I entered. There was no one else present. The hut was small. A glance showed me every corner. The herb woman's guest had departed. Without even apologizing for my abrupt intrusion, I quickly ran down the mountain, and as I did so, the queer rhyme which contained the key to the secret passage occurred to my memory. I had my memorandum book with me. I opened it now, and read the words. When the yew and star combine, draw it twenty cubits line. Wait until the saintly lips shall the belfry spire eclipse. Cubits eight across the first. There shall lie the tomb accursed. Gibberish, doubtless, and yet gibberish with a possible meaning. I pondered over the enigmatical words. There is a yew-tree in the churchyard, I said to myself, but the rest seems unfathomable. There was a shortcut home through the churchyard. I resolved to take it. I went there and walked straight to the yew-tree. When the yew and star combine, I said, speaking aloud, surely there is only one star which remains immovable, the pole or north star. I looked up at the sky. The pole star was shining down upon me. I became excited and much interested. Moving about, I presently got the trunk of the old yew tree and the star in a line. Then I again examined my key. Draw it twenty cubits line. Twenty cubits meant thirty feet. I walked on in a straight line that distance and then perceived in the moonlight, for the moon had now risen, that standing here, and looking at the church spire, the lips of the stone carving of a saint just covered the spire itself from view. Surely the meaning of the second couplet was plain. Wait until the saintly lips, 
shall the belfry spire eclipse. The third and last couplet ran as follows. Cubits eight across the first, there shall lie the tomb accursed. My heart beating hard, I quickly measured eight cubits, namely twelve feet, and then started back with a cry of horror, for I had come to a large vault which stood open. The entrance stone had been moved aside. Without an instant's hesitation I ran down some steps. The tomb was a large one, and was quite empty. Never coffin of man had lain here, but a passage wound away to the left, a tortuous passage, down which I quickly walked. My lantern threw light on the ghastly place, and the air was sufficiently good to prevent the candle going out. Why was the tomb open? What was happening? Fear itself seemed to walk by my side. Never before had I so felt its ghastly presence. I hurried my steps, and soon perceived a dim light at the farther end. The next instant I had entered the hall of the old house. I had done so through a panel which had been slipped aside. Had any one gone in before me? If so, who? Who had opened the tomb? Who had traversed the passage? Who had gone into the house by this fearful and long-closed door? I was just about to rush upstairs, when a piercing scream fell on my ears. It came from just above me. With two or three bounds I cleared the stairs, and the next instant my eyes fell upon a huddled-up heap on the landing. I bent over it. It was Rosalie. Her features were twitching in a horrible manner, and her dilated eyes stared at me without any recognition. Her lips were murmuring, "'Catch her! Catch her!' The next moment the rector appeared, hurrying down the passage in his dressing-gown. "'What is wrong?' he cried. "'What has happened?' The girl clung to my arm, and now sent up scream after scream. The entire house was aroused, and the servants with scared faces came running to the spot. Rosalie's terror now found vent in fresh words. "'The herb-woman!' she sobbed. "'The ghost of the herb-woman! I heard a noise, and ran on to the landing. I met her. She was coming from Mr. Dufrayer's room. She was making straight for yours, Mr. Head. Suddenly she saw me, uttered a cry, and flew downstairs. Oh, catch her! The ghost! The ghost!' "'Did you say the woman was coming from Dufrayer's room?' I asked. A sudden, maddening fear clutched at my heart. "'Where was Dufrayer? Surely he must have heard this uproar.' I went to his room, opened the door, and dashed in. Inside all was darkness. "'Wake up!' I said to him. "'Something dreadful has happened. Did you not hear Rosalie scream? Wake up!' There was no answer. I returned to the landing to fetch a light. The rector now accompanied me into the room. We both went up to the silent figure in the bed. I bent over him and shook him by the shoulder. Still he did not stir. I bent lower, and observed on his neck, just behind the ear, a slight mark, the mark which a hypodermic syringe would make. Good God! What had happened? You are close to death. You cannot guard against it, try as you may, for it will come from an unlooked-for source, and be instant and swift in its work. The words echoed mockingly in my ears. I flung down the bedclothes, and in an excess of agony laid my hand on the heart of the man I loved best on earth. He was dead. I staggered back, faint and giddy, against the bedpost. "'See,' I said to the old clergyman, "'her work, the fiend. She has been in this house. She has entered by the secret passage. Come at once, there is not an instant to lose. As there is a God in heaven, she shall pay the price for this crime.' Sherwood gazed at me as if he thought me bereft of my senses. He could not believe that Dufrayer was really dead. I pointed to the small wound, and asked him to feel where the heart no longer beat. "'But who has done it?' he said. 
"'What fiend do you allude to? "'Madame Colucci. "'Let us follow her.' "'I rushed from the room and downstairs. "'The panel in the wall had been slammed too, "'but my memory could not play me false. "'I knew its position. "'I found what had been so long searched for in vain, "'touched a spring and opened it. "'Sherwood and I hurried down the winding passage. "'Just at the entrance to the tomb "'we came upon a gypsy woman's bonnet and cloak.' They had been dropped there, doubtless, by Madame, when she had flown after committing her deadly work. We entered the empty tomb. On the floor lay a small hypodermic syringe. I picked it up. It was broken. To its sides clung a whitish-gray substance. I guessed what it afterwards proved to be, trinitrin or nitroglycerin in strong solution. The effect of such a terrible poison would be instantaneous. Sherwood and I returned to the house. The place was in an uproar of excitement. The local police were called in. I told my strange tale and my strong suspicions, to which they listened with breathless interest. Rosalie was very ill, going from one strong hysterical fit into another. The doctor was summoned to attend her. The fact of Defrayer's death was carefully kept from the sick girl. Her father was so distracted about her that he could give no attention to anyone else. Meanwhile I was alone, utterly alone, with my anguish and horror. The friend of my life had fallen by the hand of Madame Colucci. A fire was burning in my brain, which grew hotter each instant. Never was a man more pursued with a deadly thirst for vengeance. The thought that Madame was moment by moment putting a greater distance between herself and me drove me mad. Towards morning I could stand inaction no longer, and determined to walk to the station. When I got there I learned that no train left before nine o'clock. This was more than I could bear my restlessness increased. The junction which connected with the main line was a distance of fifteen miles off. There was no carriage to be obtained. Nevertheless, I resolved to walk the distance. I had overestimated my own strength. I was already faint and giddy. The shock had told on me more than I dared to own. I had not gone half the distance, before I was seized with a queer giddiness. My eyes grew dim. The earth seemed to reel away from me. I staggered forward a few steps, and then all was lost in darkness. I must have stumbled and fallen by the wayside, and my fit of unconsciousness must have been long, for when I came to myself the sun was high in the heavens. A rough-looking man, dressed as a workman, was bending over me. "'You have been real bad,' he said, the moment my eyes met his. "'The lady said to throw cold water on you, and you'd be better.' The man's words roused me, as no ordinary restorative could do. I sat up, and the next moment had tottered to my feet. "'The lady?' I said. "'Did you mention a lady? What lady?' "'A tall lady,' was the reply. "'A stranger in these parts. She was bending over you when I come along. She had black eyes, and I thought she was giving you something to bring you round. When she saw me, she said, "'You dash cold water over him, and he'll come too.' "'But where is the lady now?' I gasped. "'There, by yonder hill, just going over the brow, don't you see?' "'I do, and I know who she is.' I must overtake her. Good-bye, my man. I am all right. So I was. The sudden stimulus had renewed my faltering strength. I recognized that figure. With that grace, inimitable and perfect, which never at any moment deserted it, it was moving from my view. Yes, I knew it. Madame Colucci had doubtless found me by the wayside, and had meant to complete the work which she had begun last night. Had she still possessed her syringe, I should now have been a dead man. Where was she going? doubtless to catch the very train to which I was hurrying. If so, we should meet almost immediately. I hurried forward. 
once again I caught sight of the figure in the far distance. I could not get up to it, and suddenly I felt that I did not want to. I should meet her in London to-night. That was my thought of thoughts. As I approached the great junction I heard the whistle of a coming train. It was the express. It dashed into the station just as I reached it. I was barely in time. Without waiting for a ticket, I stumbled almost in a fainting condition into the first carriage I could reach. The train moved on. I felt a sudden sense of satisfaction. Madame Colucci was also on board. How that awful journey was passed is difficult for me to remember. Beyond the thought of thoughts that Madame and I were rushing to London by the same train, that we should beyond doubt meet soon, I had little feeling of any sort. Her hour was close at hand. My hour of vengeance was nigh. At the first junction I handed two telegrams to a porter, and desired him to send them off immediately. They were to Tyler and Ford. When between eight and nine o'clock that night we reached Euston, the detectives were waiting for me. "'Madame Colucci is in the train,' I said to them. "'You can apprehend her if you are quick. There is not an instant to lose.' The men, in wild excitement, began to search along the platform. I followed them. Surely Madame could not have already escaped.' She had not the faintest idea that I was in the train. She would take things leisurely when she reached Euston. So I had hoped, but my hopes were falsified. Nowhere could we get even a glimpse of the face for which we sought. "'Never mind,' said Ford. "'I also have news, and I believe that our success is near. We will go straight to her house. I learned not an hour ago that a fresh staff of servants had been secured, and the house is brightly lit up. Our detectives who surround the place are under the impression that she will be in her old quarters to-night. I have a carriage in waiting. We will start immediately. Without a word I entered it, and we drove off. We made no plans beyond the intention in each man's breast that Madame should be taken, either alive or dead. As the carriage drew up at the house I noticed that the hall was brilliantly lighted. The moment Ford touched the bell, a flunky threw the door open, as if he were waiting for us. "'My mistress is in her laboratory,' was his reply to our inquiries. She has just returned after a journey. I think she expects you, gentlemen. Will you go to her there? You know the way. We rapidly crossed the hall and began to descend the stone steps. As we did so, the muffled hum of machinery in rapid motion fell on our ears. Just as we reached the laboratory door, Ford, who had been leading the way, stopped and turned around. His face was very pale, but he spoke firmly and quietly. "'There is not the least doubt,' he said in a semi-whisper, "'that we are going into great danger. Madame would not receive us like this if she had not made a plan for our destruction, which only she could devise. It is impossible to tell what may happen. That it will be a terrible encounter, and that it will need all our strength and presence of mind, is certain, for we are now about to enter the very sanctuary of her fiendish arts and appliances. I will go first. The moment I see her I shall cover her, and if she stirs will shoot her dead on the spot. He turned the handle of the door, and we slipped silently into the laboratory. It was like entering a furnace. The heat was stifling. A single incandescent burner shed a subdued light over the place, revealing the outline of the stone roof and dim recesses in the walls. At the farther end stood Madame. As we entered, she turned slowly and faced us. Her face was quiet, her lips closed, her eyes alone expressed emotion. "'Hands up, or I fire!' rang up from Ford, who stepped forward and immediately covered her with his revolver. She instantly obeyed, raising both her arms. Her eyes now met mine, 
and the faintest of smiles played round her lips. The next instant, as if wrenched from his grasp by some unseen power, the weapon leapt from Ford's hands, and dashed itself with terrific force against the poles of an enormous electromagnet beside him. Every loose piece of iron started and sprang towards it with a deafening crash. Madame must have made the current by pressing a key in the floor with her foot. For a moment we stood rooted to the spot, thunderstruck by the sudden and unforeseen method by which we had been disarmed. Madame Colucci still continued to gaze at us, but now her smile grew broader, and soon it rang out in a scornful laugh. "'It is my turn to dictate terms,' she said in a steady, even voice. "'Advance one step towards me, and we die together. "'Norman Head, this is your supposed hour of victory, "'but know that you will never take me either alive or dead.' As she spoke, her hand moved to a small lever on the bench beside her. She drew herself up to her full majestic height, and stood rigid as a figure carved in marble. I glanced at Ford. His lips were firmly compressed. Drops of sweat gleamed upon his face. He began to breathe quickly through distended nostrils. Then, with a sudden spring, he bounded forward, and simultaneously there leapt up, straight before our eyes, what seemed like one huge sheet of white flame. So fearfully bright and dazzling was it that it struck us like a blow, and Tyler and I fell. We were blinded by a heat that seemed to sear our very eyeballs. The next moment all was darkness. When I came to myself a cool draught of air was blowing upon my face, and Tyler's voice sounded in my ears. I rose, staggering. Before my eyes there still seemed to dance a thousand sparks and whirling wheels of fire. The servants were running about wildly, and one of the men had brought a lamp from the hall. It lit up the wild and haggard face of my companion. "'We dare not go back,' he whispered, pointing to the laboratory door, trembling and almost gibbering as he did so. "'But what has happened?' I said. I made a rush towards the laboratory. Two of the men held me back forcibly. "'It is not safe, sir,' one of them said. "'The room within is a furnace. You would die if you entered.' By main force I was kept from rushing to my own destruction. It was an hour later when we entered. Even then the heat was almost past bearing. Slowly and cautiously Tyler and I approached the spot where we had last seen Madame Colucci. Upon the stone flags lay the body of the detective, so terribly burnt as to be almost unrecognizable, and a few yards farther was the mouth of a big hole, from which still radiated a fierce heat. By degrees it cooled sufficiently to allow us to examine it. It was about eight feet deep and circular in shape. From its walls jutted innumerable jets. Their use was evident to me at once, for upon the floor beside us stood an enormous iron cylinder, such as are used for compressed gases. These had presumably been used before to create by means of the jets one vast oxyhydrogen flame to give the intensest heat known, a heat computed by scientists at the enormous temperature of 2,400 degrees centigrade. It was evident what had happened. As Ford sprang forward, Madame must have released the iron trap, and descended through a column of this fearful flame, not only causing instantaneous death, but simultaneously also an absolute annihilation. At the bottom of the well lay a small heap of smouldering ashes. These were all the earthly remains of the brain that had conceived and the body that had executed some of the most malignant designs against mankind that the history of the world has ever shown. End of chapter 10 End 
of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings.